alcoholic. Wow, what a beautiful group of women. Thank you so much to, um, to Carol and to uh, Nancy for inviting me to be here this weekend. Uh, my sister sponsee, Beth, for sharing a room with me and, and um, keeping me sane. I, um, I know that there's uh, some women here from Detroit. I just want you to know that before I got up here, the score was three to one Detroit in the top of the seventh. Um, and Beth is checking on that for me. Um, I, uh, yes, go Tigers. <laughs> I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Honolulu, Hawaii on Sunday, October 9th, 1977. And since that time, I've not used or abused alcohol or any other substance that allows me to take a trip without leaving my chair. And last October 9th, I celebrated 34 years of continuous sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I don't know, how many of you noticed those long-timers that stood up this evening? I mean, um, Virginia with 57 years, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I... Um, I shared a podium a few years ago with my friend Riley Kay from uh, Oregon, and um, Riley got sober when she was uh, 18, and she has, I think, 49 years of sobriety now. And she, um, when she talks, she talks about the legacy, the responsibility that long-timers have to carry the message the way it was carried to us, that um, long-timers like Virginia we're sitting in these rooms when we got here, and they shared the message of the steps and the traditions in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's what has allowed us to stay sober, and it's my responsibility to not mess this thing up, to keep it simple, to stick with the big book, to stick with the, the 12 and 12, to stick with our literature, and that that's the message I'm here to carry. Now, I'm going to share my story, so you're going to hear some opinions. My opinions are based on my experience, and um, and I get to have that experience because of long timers. And I, I want to tell you that I call that I've been taught to call long timers because we've been sober a long time, not an old time. <laughs> I um, my home group is the Broken Elevator Group in Livermore, California. We're a steps and tradition study. We study the steps one at a time using both the big book and the 12 and 12, and then on the last Thursday of the month, we study the tradition of the month. The elevator is broken. Please use the steps. And, um, and actually, I was instrumental in getting that meeting started. I had spoken at a conference down in Texas, and when I travel, I try to get local meeting schedules and check what names groups have, um, have gotten for themselves. And I found that name on a meeting schedule in Texas, and it was such a great name, I had to start a meeting just to use the name. <laughs> so <laughs> we also have a meeting called Rebellion Dogs and another one called Thump Bitch. And <laughs> I have a sponsor. My sponsor uh, is 48 years sober. Uh, my sponsor is Peg M. from Bellevue, Nebraska. Um, I know that some of you um, have met Peg, and... Um, and I'm going to talk about her a little later uh, in my talk. I, um, I am just really grateful to be here this evening. You know, the, the things that I share when I first stand at the podium are the things that I need to hear to get centered this evening. I, I have a sobriety date, and I know what it is. I have a home group. I know where it meets. I know who goes to that meeting. Um, they know that I'm here this weekend. Um, and I have a sponsor. And I not only have a sponsor, but I am sponsored. I talk to my sponsor on Thursday mornings at 8.30 my time, 10.30 her time. I have a day and a time to talk to my sponsor. That may not be important to you, but it's important to me. Um, I got Peg as a sponsor when I was 19 years sober. And um, I had been sponsoring myself for a while. Exactly. I don't know how many of you have tried that, but my experience with sponsoring myself is that 
I usually have a fool for a sponsor and an idiot for a sponsee. Um, and I need to have, I need, I need to be accountable. I need to have the day and time because for me, if I don't have a day and a time to, to speak to my sponsor and she says, well, call me once a week. It gets to be Friday, and I'm thinking, oh, I forgot to call Peg this week, probably on travel. You know, I don't want to bother her when she's out of town. I'll call her next week. And then it gets to be next week, and I think, oh, I forgot to call Peg. And she's probably on travel, and I don't want to bother her. And, um, and then I'm sponsoring myself. Fool, idiot. Um, or I only call her when there's a problem, and then she's got no perspective on how I go through life. She thinks that I'm always in crisis. So for me, having a day and a time is instrumental. I know Beth's time is earlier in the week because she's special. And, um, and, but, you know, and one of the things that our sponsor does, we have an annual advance. Uh, we, because we go forward, we don't retreat. And um, we get to spend the weekend with our sister sponsees, which is not quite as large as this, close sometimes. And I get to hang out with other women that are sponsored the way I'm sponsored. Um, our sponsor was um, ill earlier this year, and I'm so grateful for, for having gone to the advances and participated in the advances and known who my sister sponsees are because when Peg was ill, we had each other to fall back on. I knew who my circle of friends were. I knew who my support group was. Um, I had women to call that I didn't have to give them the whole story. They were up to date on what was going on. And um, for those of you who have had a sponsor that has taken ill or has suddenly passed, um, it's amazingly comforting to have um, women in my life in, in Alcoholics Anonymous to be able to to talk about that with. She's fine now, and, and um, we now refer to that period in her time as on vacation. <laughs> so we'll, um, I'll talk about that. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up up in uh, the Detroit area, originally from the UP, but um, <laughs> actually Pickford, close to the Sioux. <laughs> and um, from a dairy farm up there. Um, but I uh, went to school in the Detroit area, graduated from high school, got engaged at my senior prom, broke the engagement three, uh, five times in the next year. Should have been a clue. Um, the last time we went back together, uh, he, uh, he said, you know, if you give me this ring back one more time, I'm going to walk out of your life. You're never going to see me again. And I was 18 years old and from this small town, I'm thinking, if I don't marry this man, no one else will ever want me. And um, I'll be an old maid. Um, I got to tell you, I'm 61 years old. I'm single. I live alone with two cats. I'm happy. <laughs> it is a good life. <laughs> um, but, but we got married after, uh, a month after my 19th birthday. We went to New York on our honeymoon. I didn't drink in high school. I didn't know it was going to help. You know, I just, <laughs> we went to New York on our honeymoon, and, um, and we went, drinking age was 18 in New York. I don't know why drinking age mattered to me. I, I can look around this room and know it didn't matter to some of you. I, um, we went to a nice cocktail lounge. It wasn't a bar. It was a cocktail lounge. And I ordered something in a stem glass. I'd always been a fan of those movies of the 30s and the 40s, and those beautiful actresses, and you know, they had their gorgeous gowns, and their hair was perfect, and their makeup was perfect, and they'd have a cigarette and a cigarette lighter. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> they'd have a drink in a stem glass, and they'd lean against the fireplace, and they'd And I wanted to feel like they looked. <laughs> and I took that drink and it was magic. Now the next morning when I was puking my guts out, I didn't think of Lee Remick or um, Piper Laurie in the days of Wine and Roses. If you don't get that reference, ask someone near you. Um, I know my age is showing when I say that. You know, I thought I had the flu. 
I got the flu a lot when I drank. I was a I didn't, you know, I wasn't real pretty about it. I didn't talk much. Um, so we came home from our honeymoon, and uh, my husband and I worked together. We'd go to work. On the way home, we'd stop at this little party store, and we'd um, pick up a six-pack of beer, and we'd go home, and, and he'd drink, and we'd fight, and I'd cry, and he'd pass out. And when a six-pack stopped working for him, we'd, he went to two six-packs, and we'd go home, and he'd drink, and we'd fight, and I'd cry, and he'd pass out. And when I got to three six-packs, I knew my marriage wasn't working. We'd been married about a month. And um, so I knew there were two things I could do to save my marriage. I could have a baby or I could drink with my husband. I chose alcohol. Um, I, um, I didn't like beer. I, I never quite understood beer. You just kind of rent it, you know, you don't really. And, um, and that you couldn't buy packaged liquor in, in, the, in the party store. You could only um, buy beer or wine. And um, so um, I drank wine. I drank Ripple. Other Ripple drinkers, I can tell. Yes. So those of you who drank Ripple, they don't make it anymore. We got sober, they went out of business. But those of you who remember Ripple, <laughs> wow, a lot of you. <laughs> well, remember, it came in different flavors. Now, not like Chardonnay and Zinfandel. That, you know, Ripple never saw a break. Um, it was like razzmatazz and peach fuzz and pagan pink. Remember pagan pink? And um, I would buy one bottle of each different color label, and then I would go home and I had a tub, and I'd pour them all in this tub, and then I'd pour them back in the bottle, and I had my private label rainbow ripple. <laughs> and it took me where I needed to go. Um, and, it, and, of course, ripple came with a screw top, because I couldn't work a corkscrew. I had just, if I got wine with a corkscrew, first of all, that wine with a corkscrew, it tastes funny. It does not, it doesn't taste like ripple. And I couldn't work a corkscrew, so I'd just have to pound that puppy in, you know, just added to the fiber. Um, so I, um, I left that marriage when he threw me through the living room window for the second time. Now, I used to say that, and then I'd move on with my story. And I need to tell you that after a fourth and fifth set, I um, had to admit that I gave as good as I got. He was not the only one that was violent in that marriage. Uh, I was a very angry drunk. I was, uh, I was very physically abusive um, when I was drinking. And if you got on my wrong side and it didn't take much, um, that side came out in me. So um, I left him. I, I don't know if he was an alcoholic, you know. Um, he might have been. He might have just been a heavy drinker. It might just have been that he was married to me. <laughs> I moved out of that house, and I moved in with my sister. Um, I don't know if she was an alcoholic, um, but you know, if it walks like a duck, then it... I'd been married to a duck, and I <laughs> lived with a duck. And, um, I lived with her for a while, and then I moved in with another duck, went on a date, and um, I was with this guy, and a friend of his stopped by the table, and he looked better than who I was with, <laughs> so I left with him, and, um, and eventually convinced him that I couldn't be self-supporting for my own contributions, and perhaps he could help with that. <laughs> so we got married, and, um, and our marriage was in trouble from the very beginning, a lot of it having to do with my dating habits. <coughs> I um, would, you know, I'd just go out for one or two with some folks from work. I'm, I'm just going to stop for a drink, and then I'll be right home. And then I'd forget to go home, and then I'd forget where home was, and then I'd forget that I was married. And um, that, uh, he had a problem with that, he was very narrow-minded. I um, So he suggested that perhaps it was where we were living and my friends. Maybe we should move. 
I, um, I never saw that as a geographic because it wasn't my idea. <laughs> we looked at a map of the United States and Florida has hurricanes and California has earthquakes, but Hawaii, Hawaii has volcanoes, but they're on only one island. So if we don't move to that island, we don't have to worry. So we moved to Hawaii to fix my drinking. And it worked for um, a couple weeks. <laughs> and then I found the kinds of bars I like to drink in. Um, now the bars I drank in, they were dark. They were smoky. Every place was smoky in those days. Um, they usually had sticky floors, which was not a requirement, just a consequence. Um, they almost always had a jukebox that had sad country music. Oh, I see a lot of heads nodding on this one. If there is sad country music on the jukebox, I can get somebody else to pay for my booze. Because I can walk in, I can put an, a quarter in the jukebox, I can pick some sad country songs, and then I can go to the bar, pay for the one drink I'm going to pay for that evening, and I sit there and I play with my glass, and I look around the bar for a likely victim. <laughs> And somebody comes over and they put their arm around me and they say, there, there, honey, you can't be that bad. <laughs> and I drank in those bars with pilots and astronauts and surgeons. <laughs> I was sometimes those things. <laughs> Some of you were sometimes those things. <laughs> And um, I learned about honesty in AA. I did not learn about it in the bars. I, um, I, I came to a place where um, I, I woke up. I had, uh, my husband worked out of town. And um, we had had a big argument one night, and he had called me an alcoholic. Now, that is, I have to say, a lot nicer than what I was being called in the bars I was drinking in. Um, but he called me an alcoholic. I knew what an alcoholic looked like. I had an uncle that had died of a wet brain. I'd watched him die, and I knew what that looked like. I uh, had alcoholism in my extended family, not in my immediate family, other than my sister. Um, and I knew that I wasn't an alcoholic. I might have a slight problem, maybe drink a little bit too much from time to time. By this point, I was drinking in Skid Row bars. I wasn't living on Skid Row, but I was drinking in Skid Row bars. I was passing out behind the Dempsey dumpsters of those bars. I was coming to with, um, with my hair matted to my face because I'd usually puked on myself. I'd usually wet and mess myself. And, um, but I didn't think I had to be an alcoholic. I just needed to, you know, I had a few things that I needed to work out. I needed to be okay and I didn't need to drink like this. It wasn't until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous that I realized I never drank without the intention of getting drunk. I didn't see any reason to drink without the intention of getting drunk. I didn't understand what just have a couple drinks. I said those words, but I did not know what they meant. I never had a couple drinks. Um, I, um, but he'd called me an alcoholic, and, and so I was gonna, um, I was gonna prove that I was not. I did exactly what it says in chapter three, except for the natural wine part again with another frog joke. Um, this is my big book, not my class. Um, so I did those things it talks about in chapter three. You know, I tried switching from wine to brandy. I, I tried never drinking alone. I tried never drinking at home. I tried only drinking at home. I took a trip. I went home to visit my family. Um, it was the end of my drinking, and I spent six weeks with them, and I don't know how they survived. Um, I, um, I had quit my job earlier that year, and I actually, I quit my job. It wasn't until I got sober that I realized the reason I'd quit my job was because I'd used up all my sick time and all my vacation time, and my birthday was coming up, and I wanted to take the day off for my birthday. And I was afraid that if I asked the day, for the day off, they'd fire me, so I quit so I could have my birthday off. Um, I didn't realize that I wouldn't have a job to go back to after my birthday. <laughs> Took more physical exercise. Oh, I went to see a shrink. Um, I went to see this shrink, and um, I quit drinking. I, I, um, I did eventually stop drinking. I um, 
swore off working without a formal note. What happened when I quit, I didn't know anything about, about withdrawal or any of those things, DTs, any of that. And I thought I was having a nervous breakdown. And I knew that if you had a nervous breakdown and you didn't have a good doctor, you'd have to go to the state hospital. And I, did, I knew what state hospitals looked like. I worked in them. So um, I thought maybe what I needed to do was just get a good print so that I could go to a private sanitarium, work on some moccasins, a couple ashtrays, <laughs> do the Thorazine shuffle down to the day rooms, watch the soap. Um, I, uh, so I went to see this doctor, and he asked me why I was there. I told him I didn't like myself, and he asked me what I didn't like, and I said, well, you know, I don't like the way I look, and I don't like the way I think, and I don't like the things I say. And I hadn't had a drink in a couple of weeks, so that obviously was not the problem. And he said, well, why don't we start with the way you look, and he gave me a prescription for some diet pills. And I left his office that afternoon. I went across the street to Mom's Drugs, and I asked to speak to the pharmacist, and I explained to the pharmacist that there was a family emergency on the morning and that I didn't know how long I'd have to be gone. And, and I knew it would be very hard to get a refill for my prescription on the morning of it, and could I maybe have all my refills to take with me? <laughs> and I left Mom's Drugs with a little white bag for little brown bottles for little white tails. And I went back a week later, and I explained to the psychiatrist, well, I still couldn't seem to work very well for me. I didn't know what was wrong. The pills weren't working, though. The house was clean. The car was clean. The dogs were clean. Everything was perfectly fine, but the pills weren't working. There must be something wrong with those pills. Maybe there's something else you could give me. So he gave me another prescription, and I left his office. I went across the street to ABC Drugs. And I explained to the pharmacist that there was a family emergency on the mainland, and I didn't know how long I'd have to be gone, and maybe I could have all my refills. And I left ABC drugs with a little white bags, a little brown mouth, a little orange pills. And that was the summer of 1977. It was very fast. <laughs> so, I know that at some point I, uh, I drank while I was taking those um, little outside issues. And, um, I'm not sure my body's ever quite figured that out. Um, I took more physical exercise. I joined a softball team. I was a shortstop because I was fast. Of course I was fast. <laughs> I wasn't very accurate. You know, I could, I'd get to the ball and stand there and vibrate. And, um, and, uh, so one Sunday morning, I, um, I missed an easy field, and my coach pulled me out of the game, and I questioned whether his mother knew who his father was. And I got in my car, and I drove, up, drove out of Kapuolani Park, and um, I drove along Diamond Head Road going home. And I had a little sports car at that point, and, and I kept thinking, I remember driving home. And, you know, it, it's so amazing. When I talk about this part of my story. This is the, the, the day I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I hadn't had a drink that day. And I hadn't had any of those little outside issues that day. I don't think I've had a drink or any of those outside issues at 86. I am one of those alcoholics. I don't remember my last drink. If anybody ever drinks, if you can remember how you felt when you walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I, um, the headless four horsemen, you know, all of that was upon me. Um, restless, irritable, and discontent. I, um, driving home along that, along Diamond Head Road, there's that little rock wall, and I kept thinking, if I could go fast enough, I could hit this wall, and I could go over, and I could die. And that, I just could not find any other answer to, to what was going on. But I hadn't had anything to drink that day. I hadn't had any outside issues that day. I was afraid that at the last minute I'd take my foot up off the accelerator and would not hit the wall hard enough. So I went home and I fixed myself a drink so that I could die. And um, before I took any of that drink, I walked to the back of the house and I picked up the phone and I dialed into the intern. And I asked for the phone number of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the information operator did not give me the phone number of Alcoholics Anonymous. She connected me with Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if she had not done that, if there would be someone else standing here this morning. Because I don't know if I would have written down the name. I don't know if I would have hung up the phone, picked up the phone, and dialed 
she connected me with Alcoholics Anonymous, a woman answered the phone. I was afraid of the guy from Milwaukee. I was so dishonest. I was living such a life of lies. I was ashamed of how I was supporting my habit. I was drinking the Skid Row bars, supported my, my habit the way I needed to support my habit, and they said, if you drank the way I drank, you know what I mean. I was afraid of what you would think of me if I got any gossip. So this woman answered the phone, and I told her I'd like to know something about your program for a friend of mine that I think might have a problem. And she said, maybe you'd like to go to a meeting. And I said, my friend would not want to do that. <laughs> maybe you could just send me some literature. Well, maybe I'll do it just one, of course, I guess. She said, oh, honey. Now, this is, this, I don't know if this is what she said. This is what I heard. She said, honey, we don't send out literature, but if you go to a meeting, you can get some literature, and you can meet some women and get some phone numbers. Oh, yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe you could just tell me about Alcoholics Anonymous, and then I'll tell my friend about Alcoholics Anonymous. She started talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, she mentioned the word God. I interrupted her and explained to her that I don't believe in God. She said, oh, does your friend believe in God? <laughs> so I let her tell me where there was a meeting, but of course not in my neighborhood. You know, just a few weeks before that, my neighbors had had to call uh, the EMTs on me because when they were going to work that morning, I was passed out on my front lawn and they thought I was dead. Um, but for God's sake, don't let them see me going into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> so my first meeting was at the, um, the Atkinson YMCA on Alamon Boulevard across from Alamon Shopping Center. And... Um, I, uh, she told me to get to the meeting early, she had a light, and uh, to go up to the first woman I saw on the corner and tell her I was a newcomer. And um, so I, uh, I, I actually took a shower. Um, I don't know the people in that meeting were ever so grateful that I had taken a shower, but I feel <laughs> I see a nod over here. I uh, took a shower and then I went to the meeting and I I got there, and there were a bunch of people out on the lanai, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, laughing, having a great time. And I thought, oh, that's the party I should be at. But no, I have to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> you know, so then I get in the AA room, and it's empty. They're all out on the lanai, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, laughing, having a great time. Except for one person, back by the coffee pot, a woman. I go up to her before I can say anything. I start crying. She looks at me and she says, Oh, you're a newcomer. <laughs> and she's all excited. <laughs> and she takes me outside and she introduces me to the women of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they give me their phone numbers. Some of the men give me their phone numbers. The women take them away from me. <laughs> I, um... I was young and cute when I got here. <laughs> I, um, so then the meeting starts. They sit me in the front row between Blanche and Connie. And um, Alan Kay starts meeting, and he asks if there's anyone in their first group, anyone that's new to Alcoholics Anonymous. And Blanche pokes me, and my hand goes up. And she says, would you like to give us your name? <laughs> And I want to tell you that I cried through my whole first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. But there are people in this room who know me, and they know that I've cried through 34 years and 360-some days of Alcoholics Anonymous, including tonight. I, um, I left that meeting when it was over. Oh, then we stood up and had conference with the Lord's Prayer, and I knew it was a cult, and that next, next week you'd give me my orange pajamas and shave my head and send me to the airport with flowers, you know. Um, that was really a big thing in Hawaii in those days. We had a Hare Krishna at the airport. I, um, I left the meeting, and I, I went home, and I came back a week later because I thought I'd join Sunday night AA. I thought maybe it was like Weight Watchers, you know, I'd get a card and get my card changed. 
we didn't have people getting nuggets from the judges in those days, and, and um, so I didn't see anybody giving me cards signed or other. That's the one. I um, came back a week later, and I walked in, and one person in the room, the coffee maker glanced, and she came up to me, and she said, Penny, it is great to see you. She remembered my name. What a huge relief that was. She said, how many meetings have you been to this week? <laughs> I was here last Sunday. She said, but during the week, how many meetings did you go to during the week? Sunday. So she went over to the literature rack, and she got, um, she got some literature uh, meeting schedule, and she marked some stuff on it. She took me out to Renee, and she said to Renee, I've marked the meetings where I'll meet Penny. Would you mark the meetings where you'll meet Penny? And last month, last month Blanche celebrated. Uh, last month Blanche celebrated 35 years as a judge. And in August, Connie celebrated 35 years as a judge. Those women took that action with 30 and 60 days of sobriety. They were. I get to be here tonight. I get to have 34 years of sobriety because of women with 30 and 60 days who had sponsors and were doing what their sponsors told them to do. I, um, I started going to meetings because I thought it would be rude not to show up. I was, I was very lucky. God put me in the middle of, you know, my friend Beth will speak tomorrow morning. Do not miss her talk. It's a great talk. God did for me what God did for Beth. He put me in the middle of strong AA. Now, I would love to say that I did what Beth did. I took a different approach. I came to the one place where I could ask for help, and I said, Oh, no, I'm fine. Thank you. I was fine a lot. Oh, no, that's okay. I can do it. I, um, they told me to get a sponsor. Um... I, I tried a sponsor, had a bad experience with that. Um, she shared something that I had shared with her in confidence. Um, I stayed sober through it, but I was not going to trust you after that. So I, uh, I would call different women in the program. If I called you that day, I kind of had to sponsor the Zur program. If I called you that day, you were my sponsor. I hadn't asked you to sponsor me. I didn't let you know you were no longer sponsoring me. Um, if I didn't like what you said, I called a different sponsor. <laughs> I finally found the perfect sponsor. Um, I got her as a service commitment. Uh, Tom and Maggie had had her as a service commitment, and she was in the hospital, and, and they were being transferred out of town, and I had to go to the visit to the hospital and visit her, and I had to read to her from the Big Bowl, and I had to redo her from the Grapevine. That was when I got my first uh, subscription to the Grapevine. I still have a Grapevine subscription. I recommend them. Um, so I'd sit there and I'd visit with her and I'd read from the big book and then I'd read from the grapevine and then I'd tell her what was going on and what my solution was. She thought it was a great idea. Well, I guess she thought it was a great idea. She never disagreed with me. She was in a coma. <laughs> I don't know if our sponsor, Peg, is going to hear this CD. I'm guessing she won't. But Beth suggested to me earlier today that I perhaps maybe had an easier time when Peg was on vacation because I had already had experience with a sponsor in a coma. <laughs> I, um, I finally came to a place where I could no longer resist God's will working in my life. I, um, I was sponsoring myself. I did have a pool for a, a sponsor and an immediate for a sponsee. And... Um, and I came to a place where uh, nothing was working for me. I had taken the booze and the drugs out of me. I had not worked the steps. I was not sponsored. I was I knew nothing about the traditions. And my answer was the same thing at 18 months of sobriety that my answer had been before I walked in those doors. The only solution I could come up with, uh, once again, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, restless irritability, discontent. I could not come up with any other answer. The only thing I could come up with at 18 months of sobriety was the cross of Jesus. And I was going to kill myself on a Saturday. I was going to do it on Saturday so that it would be on the front page of the Sunday paper. Uh, grandiosity is on my six-step list. I'm just going to tell you that. 
at, on Friday night I went to a meeting. I did not go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous so that someone would come up to me afterwards and save my life. I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous so that when you opened the paper on Sunday morning and saw what had happened and that I was dead, that you would feel so bad because you didn't say anything to me. And you saw me at the meeting on Friday night and you just let me go. And it's your fault, me. So I went to the meeting with that attitude and I stood in the back of the room with my arms crossed and my eyes narrowed and those thin lips. You hearing me, Sharon? <laughs> and I thought, and after the meeting, this guy came up to me and said, you know, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to die. And then tell me I was going to get drunk. He didn't tell me I was going to get loaded. Tell me I was going to die. I did the only thing a woman can do. I batted my big hand and I batted him and I said, honey, I don't know what you're talking about. And I cried all the way home. And I didn't kill myself the next day just to prove that he was wrong. And I owe my life and my sobriety to people in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous who have cared more about saving my life than they have about hurting me for money. That they are not afraid to tell me the truth. That I am sponsored and, and am willing and have a sponsor that is louder than my head. That I have sister sponsees, some with less sobriety than I have, that are willing to tell me the truth and are louder than I am. And I am grateful for that. I owe my life to that and I owe my sobriety to that. I, shortly after that, God put a woman in my life that believed that the disease of alcoholism, uh, that the solution to the disease of alcoholism was through the 12 steps which were outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, she wound up through what I thought was a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings killing me in my home. And I thought she was a whole new audience for what my life had become. And so I started to tell her my terrible tale of woe. And she'd listen and she'd say, Penny, that's interesting information, but you are an alcoholic and you have not worked the steps. And it was clear she was not paying attention. <laughs> so I would tell her more of my story. And she would say, Penny, that's interesting information, but you are an alcoholic and you have not worked the steps. So I'd tell her more of my story. And eventually, I decided that I would just work those steps to prove that they would not work for me. And I am here to share with you tonight that the steps don't know who's working them. The steps just do. The steps don't know how many times I've worked them before. The steps just work. The steps don't know why I'm working them. The steps don't know what I'm working them on. The steps don't know if I'm male or female, if I'm straight or gay, if I'm black or white. The steps of Alcoholics Anonymous just work. And I worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they worked in my life. And my life changed. And um, it got really real. Um, I had been married when I walked in here. When I was two and a half months sober, my husband had uh, left me a note that he'd gone out of town on business. He'd be back in a week and he needed a spot. 34 years ago, he's not home yet. Um, <laughs> as a result of that, I, 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 lost, um, I lost our car. I lost our house. Um, my car was repossessed. I was an um, officer of our business. I was the only one they could find. He had um, cleaned out our uh, savings account, overdrawn our checking account, and um, I was sued for half a million dollars. I didn't have half a million dollars. Um, and uh, so I was uh, I was living in this little apartment under a house. I um, I was taking uh, temporary jobs to. I was in school when I got uh, when I got sober. I was um, on financial aid at school. I was taking part time jobs, uh, temporary jobs, so that I could pay my way through school. And um, that summer, I was working a temporary job, and the guy I was working for offered me a full time job. And um, I explained to him that um, I was going to law school in the fall and I really didn't, wasn't looking for a full-time job. And he offered it to me again and I gave him some other excuse and he offered it to me again. Eventually, I had, I had a sponsor by this time, but I wasn't carrying that day, of course, because I had a plan. And um, at one point, in a weak moment, I'm sure, I mentioned it to my sponsor and he said, um, Penny, you need to be self-supporting for your own contribution. One of my first um, introductions to the program, to the tradition. 
and um, host a job. I said, well, I've already turned it down four times. It's not going to happen to me again. The next day, I go into work. He sits down in the chair next to my desk, and he says, what can I do to convince you to take this job? And I looked at him, I said, <laughs> And I thought, you know, that sounds kind of bad. And I said, well, I go to AA. And he said, I don't care. Take the job. And so I did. And as a result, as a result of taking that job, uh, a few years later, I was at a, a conference for work, and, um, and I was offered, um, I had five job offers in two days. They were all in Washington, D.C. I'd always wanted to live and work in Washington. So I, uh, I told God he did a real good job with that, and I picked the one I thought I should have, and again, and um, I picked the job I thought I should have, and I flew to Washington to a job with a legal firm uh, for a year, and then worked for a consulting firm. And as a result of that job, I, um, I had the privilege of um, traveling around the country. I got to go to AA meetings wherever I went on business. Um, I had a wonderful experience of walking into an AA meeting in, uh, in uh, Amarillo, Texas, and um, no, in New Orleans, Louisiana, and my client was the greeter at the door. <laughs> and I kind of stepped back, and, and he'd already seen me, and he came forward, and he said, oh, I knew there was something about you. I lied. <laughs> and uh, so the next day at the office, he came up and into the cubicle where I was working, and he said, there's a new meeting. You want to go? So we went to a new meeting. We picked up lunch on the way back from drive through and went back, and had lunch at our desk and did our job, and, and um, he, um, the next day, or a couple days later, he came into my cubicle and he said, do you go to a new meeting? So we went to a new meeting and picked up lunch in the drive through on the way back, and, and uh, my boss came into my office that afternoon and he said, you know, Diane's mad. <laughs> I said, yeah, we're just going out to lunch, and he said, you're gone for an hour and you bring your lunch back and eat it at your desk. <laughs> so after that, we got lunch on the way to the meeting. Um, I, um, in 1986, I had a temporary duty assignment to Livermore, California, and, um, and uh, 24 years later, um, I am still working there. Um, I relocated to California in uh, 1987 and started going to meetings, uh, got involved in the program, uh, found a home group. It was the principal studies group, step and traditions meeting. A step meeting has been my home group for um, out of my 34 years sober, um, probably 30 years of my sobriety were meetings in some step studies, step and tradition studies. And uh, started going to meetings, and um, I was at a meeting. There was this long-timer there, and uh, he looked like he needed my help. And um, so I helped him. <laughs> and then we got married. <laughs> and um, Glenn got sober in December 1963, and uh, he was 17 years older than me. He was a good man, a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, and we became Mr. and Mrs. AA. And, and I was sponsoring myself at that point. I did not have a sponsor. I was not sponsored. And, um, and I became very angry, and I became very judgmental. And um, I was, uh, to say the least, a grieving victim. I knew how it should be done, and you were not doing it right. And I did not know until later. I could only say in retrospect how close we were to doing it. But because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, there were people who loved me enough to tell me the truth, and that's what they had been doing. And um, as a result of that, uh, for my 19th birthday, I called Ted and, and asked if he'd sponsor me. And i got to tell you that at 19 years, uh, when Ted told me that she wanted me to call her once a week, I thought, excuse me, I have 19 years sober. I do not need to call my sponsor once a week. And, um, but I thought, you know, I just asked her to sponsor me, and I, um, I told her that I was willing to follow directions. And um, she, uh, I didn't think it was appropriate to say, well, except for that one. <laughs> so I started calling my sponsor once a week, and uh, as a result of that, I, um, 
I had a relationship with her senior year at the final in my life, senior year. And at 20 years of sobriety, um, I had a rude awakening as opposed to a spiritual awakening. And I called my sponsor and told her what was really going on in my life. And she told me to work the steps. And I, um, you know, how sometimes you're new, sometimes you'll hear somebody say something like, you can take the steps back to where you started. Steps are numbers in the Indian for a reason. And um, I heard her say, write a four-step. And I kept trying to write a four-step. I couldn't write a four-step. And I was on my way to the airport um, to fly out of town, and I heard a voice say, um, you can't write a four-step if you don't work the first step. So I got to the airport. My flight was delayed. And all I had in my carry-on was a big book, a pen, a notebook, and a deck of cards. It was tempting, but I took the cards with me. And I took a first step, and I did a second step, and I wrote a third step prayer, and then I started writing my fourth step. And I wrote my fourth step all the way from San Francisco to Sioux City, Iowa. And um, I spoke that weekend, and I flew home, and I worked my fourth step all the way home. And I called Tad, and she was coming into town in a couple weeks, and I did my fourth step. As a result of that first step, I um, needed to go to my husband and tell him what was going on, and that I needed to leave my marriage. And as a result of that, um, I, you know, he was—he had a sponsor. He was sponsored, and he knew exactly what was going on. And he said, "What can I do to help you?" Um, and as a result of that, we were able to walk through our divorce um, with grace and dignity, no heads held high. My sponsor told me that this is Alcoholics Anonymous. This is not divorce court. I do not bring my divorce into these rooms. I take my problems to my sponsor. I bring my solution to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, she, um, she told me that I would not talk badly about Glenville to anyone except to her. I would not talk about him with my sister sponsees. I would not talk about him with my sponsees or my friends. If I needed to talk badly about Glenville, I would call her. And that was the only connection I had. And um, and he was given the same direction, and I didn't know that. And as a result of that, he is my favorite ex-husband. Um, we were best friends till the day he died. And he passed away a few years ago with uh, 43 years of sobriety. And he was a good man. And... Um, and I'm so grateful to have had him in my life, to have had him as a friend and as a husband. Um, he, gave, he had wonderful stories. He, he told great stories. And um, I, was, I was sharing one with Nancy earlier today. And, and it, you know, it's just little things that remind me of um, to, to bloom where I am planted and to be where I'm planted. And um, that I just really feel number of things. I... Um, as a result of having to go to him, what I learned about was superhumanity. I, um, I had these secrets that I didn't think I could tell anybody because if you knew those, what would you think? And as a result of that, I had never shared those things in secret. And I was holding on to them. And what I know, you know, I was talking with somebody last night about when you go to a big book study, and I don't know about you, this is my big book, it's highlighted. It has notes in the margin. And I sit next to people in AA meetings, and we all come in here thinking we're different. We're not going to understand. And yet, do you ever pay attention to what other people are highlighting in their big books? We're all highlighting the same thing. And so what I know is that I'm not unique. What I did, my circumstances may be different, but I'm not unique. And I know that there's someone in this room that has a secret that she thinks she can't share with anybody. And I want to tell you that you can. If you don't think you can share it with your sponsor, you can call me. I'm in room 601. If it's 2 o'clock in the morning, ask for Beth. <laughs> don't somebody call at 2 o'clock in the morning just to call Beth. <laughs> But I know that I'm not the only one that has done that. And you can share it with me. I promise it will not go any farther. 
I'm leaving town tomorrow evening. I have nobody to share it with. It is, and please just share the secret. And I can tell you that once it is shared, it is easy. Once it is seen the light of day, it is easy. And it is a gift that God has given us. I am, um, my life is absolutely amazing. I, um, I had major surgery a couple years ago, and as a result of that, I went into a rehab. Um, I went into a skilled nursing facility um, where there were nursing patients and there were rehab patients. I knew my second day there that I was not going to survive this rehab unless I found a way to be sick. And um, I could only walk with a walker if I had a staff to handle with me. I had very little choice. So I needed to find a way to be of service while I was in that wheelchair. And what I discovered is that the people that are there for the nursing facility, you know the ones that they kind of park out by the nurse's station after the meals because the nurses have work to do, and, and they, but they need to see them and they have to be out of their room. And, they don't, and those people that they park there don't talk to anybody. They talk to you if you're in a wheelchair. They'll communicate with you if you're in a wheelchair. So God gave me the opportunity to be a surgeon. And uh, two years later, this past December, I had surgery. And because I'd had such a good experience the first time, this one was even better. And um, I learned about asking for help. I was okay with the asking for help. It was the receiving help that I kind of had a problem with. Because I'm not sure you're going to help me right. Or I feel indebted to you and I don't want to impose. My friend Sherry B., one of our sister sponsees, was out to visit just before I had my first surgery. And, and uh, I was speaking at a meeting and she went with me. And on the way home, she said, um, she, she had asked me on the way there how I was about that asking for help thing. And I said, um, I said, well, I've gotten better at the asking for receiving. I have trouble with. And she said, on the way home, she said, God, you did a good job tonight. And I said, well, thank you. And she said, isn't it, isn't it great how we feel after we've done something like that? And I said, it is great. We do we feel good. And you know how you feel after you've done a service? She said, great. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, isn't it funny that we'll deny someone else feeling that good by not letting them have that? Oh. I asked her how she thought she was getting home from carrying me away because I was kicking her <laughs> on the car. But. And, uh, but I was able to ask for help. I was able, when I had my second surgery, it was on my right side. I couldn't drive for six weeks. I had to ask for people to drive me to meetings. I had to ask people to take me to a grocery store. I had to accept the way they did those things if I asked for service. I didn't get to correct them or tell them I didn't want to go to that grocery store. Thank you very much. Um, no, not that soup. I wanted chicken soup. Um, and um, and then when I came back to work, I was told that my job was going to end September 30th. And um, I'm 61 years old. I am not prepared to retire yet. I I, I just do not want to retire yet. And, um, and so we were hoping that we were going to get an extension, and, and we got a six-week extension. And so I don't know if I'm unemployed or retired right now, but um, I'm working part-time three days a week, and, and my job will end the first week of December. And... And I just know that this is another step on the journey. This is, I can look back at my sobriety multiple times. And then when I'm in it, it just seems so smooth. How am I going to get through this? And yet God has given me people in my life who have walked through this, who can share their experiences and can help with me. One of the wonderful things about not only having a sponsorship family, but having sponsees that know their sister sponsees, is that we know people who have been through almost any experience any of us go through. And as a result of that, when some, I know that what I get to share is my experience, not my opinion. My experience is my experience. You can't argue with my experience. You can argue with my opinion. So when somebody calls me about something that I've not walked through, I can say, you know, I've not been through that. Just last night, I asked Beth if she would call one of our sister sponsees who is walking through the same thing that Beth walked through with her son this week. I get the opportunity to give stuff to, to, to not, to be humble enough to not have to say, oh yeah, I can fix it, because I can't. I am a sponsor. I am not God. And I need to be able to pass them on to other people. 
the women I sponsor all, all know the other women I sponsor. And it is absolutely amazing. We go to an advance once a year in September, just before the advance that does not go to the head. And I get to sit back and watch these women come together. We are women who would not normally meet. We are people who would not normally meet. Earlier today, Nancy and I had lunch with some of her sponsees and some of their sponsees. And, and after lunch, Helen came up. Where's Helen? Oh, here somewhere. Here. Helen came up, and, and she, she, she knew Nancy, and so she, she just came up to say hi. So when I walked back over to know Charlie, she's standing over there talking to a group of women in the lobby, and I thought, if she can do it, I can do it. That's my job, isn't it? So I go over to say hi to Helen. I give her a hug. She introduces me to all the women at the table, and a group of them from Chicago. Chicago? But the women that I met earlier are sitting over here. And I get to, and I get to chat with them, and I get to have... And I get to go home with a richer life because somebody reached out and showed me an example. And isn't that what we do, my friends? We share our experience, strength, and hope. I real quickly just want to tell you that, um, that I have a good life, that I have some angst about what is happening in my life, but I know I can walk through it. And I know that I have people to walk through it with me, that I don't have to do it alone, that I have the higher power who I trust that I call God. I have a relationship with my higher power. Uh, I didn't talk about that earlier. And, and I have a sponsor, and I am sponsored. And I am so grateful for my relationship with my sponsor. I know that there are some people who, at this time of sobriety, may, may not be involved in sponsorship, may not have a sponsor. For me, it is vital. Um, I have friends in the program who have more sobriety than I do that I depended on when, when Ted was on vacation. Um, I have friends in the program all over the country that, um, that I am in touch with, and they are just vital to me. But I'm grateful for my sponsor, and I really believe that she has saved my life. Um, I really, I can't imagine how the women that I sponsor could feel anything like about me like I feel about the, uh, my sponsor. But, um, but I know that they say that they do say to some people words of love. Um, I just want to end with this, uh, because I know it's been really disjointed and I don't really have a theme for my talk this evening. But um, I just, my favorite promises are, um, are in the fifth chapter on page 75, and I want to end with that, and then I'll turn the meeting back over to Nancy and let you go and do whatever you all do this evening. Um, thank you again for having me here. It was so great. But page 75, um, the fifth step promises. We pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark corner of the past. Once we have taken this step of holding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the great problem has disappeared will often come stronger. We feel we are on a broad highway walking hand in hand you know, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I didn't know how to be alone. Um, I had, you know, I drank just to get the voices down to fewer, and um, I couldn't take a ride in the car by myself because there were just too many people trying to talk to me. And, um, and the steps allowed me to get that voice down to fewer, and today I can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Um, I can look the world in the eye. When I got here, I couldn't look you in the eye. You know, I looked at the tops of my shoes, and if I wanted to be outgoing, I looked at the tops of your shoes. You know, um, I, didn't I thought I didn't believe in God when I got here, and it turned out I was hiding the truth. And I was afraid of what was going to happen if you found me. And I, I, had, I had an experience similar to Bill's with my higher power. It happened to be on a mountaintop. Uh, in Hawaii, looking out over the lights of Honolulu. And, um, but if I was trying to stay sober on that first experience with God, you would have a different speaker. If I was trying to stay sober on that first, fourth, and fifth step, you would have a different speaker. Our book tells us over and over and over that this is a lifestyle guide, and I have to put it into practice. The seventh step in the 12 and 12, at the bottom of the, of the end of the step, it says that if it will work on our alcoholism, it will work on any problem we have. So I use the steps for, you know, 
I, I put these traditions into practice in my life. If I can't put them into practice in my life, if I can't be self-supporting, if I don't know what unity is, I can't put them into practice in my group that I visit with on a Sunday. And all of that is what, what gives me a life today that's beyond my wildest dreams, and I hope yours is too. Thank you so much for having me.